as I speak, two of the Power Five conferences have announced that they are going to conference-only schedules for fall sports, including football, this year. How does that affect things in the Pac-12? And how does that affect Stanford? We will tackle both of those questions and many more on this episode of the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network. Glad you're with us. Thursday, July 16th, 2020. Hope your week has been a good one so far. Hope you are staying safe, staying sane, and doing what you need to do to make sure that we get this thing behind us. Wear a mask. You'll hear me say that on multiple occasions throughout this week's show. I'm just warning you right now. Looking forward to chatting with our special guest on this week's show. It's a long overdue appearance by him, and that's completely my fault. That has been so long since he's been on the program. Uh, he is a football analyst for the Pac-12 Network. You see him as a color commentator on Pac-12 Network football games. And he also is the host of Big Ten This Morning on Sirius XM Channel 372. And an all-around good dude, my man Anthony Heron, joining us on this week's episode of the TreeCast. Since the Pac-12 and the Big Ten are the two conferences, at least as I say this on Wednesday evening anyway, that have made the switch to conference-only play this upcoming fall, what does that mean? Anthony's going to give us his thoughts on what it means for both conferences. Also, he's based in the Midwest. I'm interested in getting his thoughts on how things are going COVID-19-wise in that part of the country and what he thinks needs to happen for Stanford to have a big season this year. So all sorts of ground we are going to cover with Anthony Heron. Looking forward to that. Follow me on Twitter at Troy Clarity. The last name is C-L-A-R-D-Y, at Troy Clarity. You have thoughts on the show and on Stanford sports and on Stanford football. I always welcome them. Hashtag TreeCast. Hashtag TreeCast. 27 years of following Stanford underneath my belt. And 28 certainly going to be a memorable, no matter when it starts. But uh, looking forward to uh, getting things going um, for uh, the fall sports season. If and when it starts. I've got some reservations about that, but I have a feeling we'll have plenty of time to talk about that as we go along. Anthony Heron coming up in just a few minutes, but first we begin the program as we usually do by giving you three things you need to know around Stanford Athletics. So let's fire it up with number one. Well, the Stanford Daily reported on Tuesday morning that four Stanford football student-athletes have tested positive for COVID-19. This was upon reporting to campus for voluntary summer activities. This was out of 190 total tests administered. Those four positive uh, tests are currently isolating. No word on whether those four were symptomatic. Now, of course, this, again, is according to the Stanford Daily. And bringing everyone in is a is a delicate time. We've talked about this. MLS has gone through this. NBA is going through this. Other sports league who are doing the doing the bubble uh, model uh, for this and trying to restart things. Uh, it's a delicate time, especially when you're bringing in folks from from different areas of the country where the COVID-19 response just has not been as proactive as it largely has been here in the Bay Area. So it's it's an interesting time, and it will be telling to see how things evolve from here. That being said, four tests are still way too many. Four positive tests are still way too many. One positive test is still way too many. Hopefully, 
Stanford's number goes to zero and stays there. In related news, wear a mask, people. Let's get to number two. How about some good news? I think we're due for some. And some pretty neat recognition for a couple of former Stanford greats. Let's start here with Denise Corlett, for on-time former Stanford women's volleyball assistant who has been named to the American Volleyball Coaches Association Hall of Fame. She is the first assistant coach to ever be named Hall of Famer, and, and why not? 31 years on Stanford staff, the last 24 as an associate head coach, 18 Pac-12 titles, 17 Final Fours, and nine national championships. Most recently, last season, when the Cardinal went to my old stomping ground, Pittsburgh, PA, and emerged victorious and brought back the trophy. Corlett retired in January. So, outstanding career, one of the very best in the business. Stanford, very fortunate to have her on staff overall uh, for over three decades. Man, what, what, what a run it has been for that program, and one that in all likelihood is not going to end anytime soon. But uh, Denise Corlett retiring in January, calling it a career. And uh, her next stop is the American Volleyball Coaches Association Hall of Fame. That's pretty cool. So is this, as we get to number three. Well, to say that Christian McCaffrey has made a pretty big splash in his first three years in the NFL is a bit of an understatement. He has become one of the best running backs and offensive weapons in the game was all pro first team last year not just at running back but also at the flex position and this year he has the madden rating to prove it for the second straight season christian mccaffrey has a 99 rating for the madden game franchise that's the highest player rating you can get by the way he and kansas city quarterback patrick mahomes of the world champion chiefs will have 99 ratings for Madden 2021 when it is released. And it was pretty cool that how McCaffrey found out the news. He actually learned this during a surprise Zoom call with former Stanford teammate Barry J. Sanders. Now, he thought, Christian McCaffrey thought that he was going to be participating in some sort of a photo shoot. And Barry J. Sanders said, hey, check out, you know, there, there's you know, your doorbell's ring. Go check that out. Go grab that. And he went and he opened up a package. And Christian uh, found out that way that he was going to be uh, getting the 99 rating, the coveted 99 rating from the Madden uh, evaluators. And he got a, got a plaque and a chain to, 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 to commemorate the, uh, the occasion. That chain's pretty cool, by the way. I'd I, I wear that around town and, and try to get free dinners everywhere I went. I'd also be wearing a mask, too. Now, of course, Barry's dad was a human video game himself. So pretty cool for Christian McCaffrey to find out from his former Stanford teammate, Barry J. Sanders. Um, two things here. Um, I remember spending a lot of time playing John Madden football on my Apple IIc back in the day. Man, a lot's changed since then. That Apple IIc is probably still sitting in, in our attic back in Oklahoma City somewhere. I also remember when Christian McCaffrey was heading to the draft and some NFL scouts and talking heads kept insisting on comparing McCaffrey to Danny Woodhead. Those folks were telling on themselves, weren't they? Those are three things. Anthony Heron of the Pac-12 Network and 
of Sirius XM College coming up in just a couple of moments. Looking forward to having that conversation with him. But first, you know what the number one sign of a bad home security system is? It's a home security system that's so complicated you never use it. Well, you know what? That's exactly the type of system that SimpliSafe has spent a decade fighting against. SimpliSafe is designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24-7. You order online, you open the box, you place the sensors, you plug it in, and bam, your home is protected around the clock. It's that simple. So... I suggest you head to simplysafe.com slash team and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com slash team. It feels good to fear less. Well, in, in a week full of big headlines last week all around college sports, certainly the fact that the Pac-12 and the Big Ten going conference only ranked right up there. Now, who can you find if you want to talk to someone that has expertise in both the Pac-12 and the Big Ten to help us break this all down? I got the guy, and he's a good friend of mine and a good friend of the show. It's always a pleasure to catch up with him. You see him breaking down football games as an analyst for the Pac-12 Network, and you also hear him uh, hosting the uh, Big Ten, uh, one of the Big Ten shows, uh, Big Ten This Morning on Sirius XM, and you hear him all around the Chicago airwaves. Good, a good time and a good, long overdue to welcome back into the show, Anthony Heron. Anthony, thanks a bunch. Appreciate the time. How you doing? Yeah, Troy, it's been too long since I've been on the TreeCast, man. Really happy you asked and happy to, happy to talk to you and see your face with everything going on. I'm very happy to be here. Yes, yes. We didn't get a chance to catch up during the previous fall season, so let's rectify that uh, right here and now by catching up today for, for this week's edition of the show. Um, of course, conference only is the way that fall sports are going for the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. We'll obviously focus on football here. And the Big Ten was first. Seemed to catch some folks by surprise. Uh, some of the other conference commissioners were like, hey, wait a minute, we weren't expecting this. Other athletic directors who had non-conference games scheduled with Big Ten schools certainly seemed to be caught off guard by this as well. Uh, what was your initial reaction? What was your first read on it when you saw that the Big Ten was going to go conference only for football and fall sports? Troy, I, you know, I think a lot of us probably anticipated that, that the Power Five was, was – certainly we knew they were considering moving in that direction with everything that's been going on with the global pandemic. It was really just going to be – it turned into with all the positive tests that were happening and, and seeing the way that – that numbers were spiking of COVID. It started to feel like more of a question of when than if. The thing that a lot of folks were curious about was if there was going to be some sort of a uniform announcement from all the Power Five together and the Big Ten sort of branching out on their own and, and doing that before really being in concert with, with the, the other autonomous conferences, that did catch some folks off guard. I was surprised by it personally as well. My sense for it, especially just sort of in the aftermath here is that Kevin Warren, the Big Ten commissioner, who, you know, I, I can't imagine a, a first six or seven months on the job that could have been more intense than everything he's dealt with throughout this calendar year. But I think when it came down to it, there were certain conferences that were more ready to pull this current lever, to go conference only now, as opposed to waiting, delaying, sort of kicking the can down the road further, uh, like the SEC, like the Big 12, who 
I mean, understandably so. I would say, okay, you're going to wait till the end of the month. When it comes down to it, I think everyone's going to end up in the same place. Um, but yeah, he certainly seemed to catch some folks off guard. But I think that the way that the, the commissioners, the athletic directors, so many of the folks in the power structure have been in close communication throughout the last few months, that to me indicates that you had some who were ready. It would seem that at this point, uh, Kevin Warren and Larry Scott were both ready, and some of the other commissioners from the Power Five have been perhaps in, in a way delaying what some of the other commissioners who have now already pulled that lever, perhaps what they had wanted to do for a little while here. And I think when it comes down to it, as has been said by multiple conferences, you do need to do what's best for your constituency. And then I suppose just hope that things can end up, you know, sort of leveling themselves out after it's all, you know, kind of coming out in the wash. Yeah, and plus I get it. There's just so much more that you can control um, in-house, uh, so to speak, as far as testing, make sure that the standards are a bit more even. Uh, you've got some big footprints geographically with some of these conferences. So, so I get it, and it seems to, seems to make a lot of sense to try to control things uh, from that standpoint. Now, I'll, I'll get your further thoughts on some of the non-conference matchups we're going to be missing as a result on this in, in a couple minutes or so. But, but the Pac-12 following suit a couple days later, uh, what, what's your read on how this affects how, – how this affects the Pac-12 football product this fall going conference only? Well, I think that, you know, when you look at the, the region that the Pac-12 represents, you know, I think a lot of us around the country tend to pay attention to, especially with numbers that have spiked, where we think of the, the states down south that perhaps, you know, haven't been as, as forthright, as, as stringent in some of the guidelines related to COVID and, and the urgency to reopen in that pocket of the country. You know, California's tried to do things, I think, in a medically advised way more so than some of those other states in the Southeast, but even California's had spikes. Arizona, you know, I suppose for, for some similar reasons to uh, some of the Southeastern region have had their spikes as well. So I, I understand why, you know, the medicine would indicate that just like the Big Ten sort of views it, you go with the, the ability to have flexibility within your schedule. And there's really no guarantees at this point. That's what I think with both conferences, the Big Ten and the Pac-12, essentially, you know, announcing it in their statements and saying that this, this doesn't guarantee that we're going forward with a football season, but folks are trying to methodically make their way down the road of, of each little scenario that can still give us a chance for a football season. And I don't mind saying, I've said a lot, on Sirius XM 372, where my Big Ten show airs, I've said it frequently that the money matters, the finances of this, the economics are a really big deal. And so that's the balance that, that the, the decision makers, the folks in the power structure are trying to balance because you do have the health and safety of these amateur student athletes that is paramount, that should be paramount, while still needing to weigh that with the financial implications of if, a football season doesn't happen. If a number of sports calendars are just scrapped due to COVID, and then you do have the ever-evolving science of it, the medicine of it, where the industry is doing everything they can to get, not even just a vaccine. Like I, I talked to a guy named Dr. Bill Maurice from the Mayo Clinic, and he was talking to me about even just treatments that they're working to try to put in place that would not equal a vaccination for COVID-19, but could put everyone in a more comfortable position to say that, you know what, even though we do have, because I think folks view it through a, either you, you're asymptomatic or you have a fatality, but there's a lot of space in between there. Like there's a lot of young people who aren't dying from COVID who do, who do still end up having 
in a lot of cases, severe medical complications and going to the ICU and some of those things, that all this ends up being factored in by the Larry Scotts of the world who have to look at this through a lens that's as wide as possible, and then in the end, make very difficult decisions that will affect lives in either way. If there's football, you're putting folks' kids at risk. If there's not football and not other sports, then the finances end up you know, going in a very negative direction even more so than they already have. So you know, I can only imagine to, to be a fly on the wall in some of the meetings and having some of the discussions that are being had and trying to figure this all out. Yeah, yeah, tough decisions uh, and tough uh, considerations, tough variables that everyone has to weigh when trying to figure out the, the correct path forward. And I was going to ask you about that. I know you've had medical experts on your Big Ten show, and it, it, it's a learning process for everybody, medical experts included. They know a lot more about this than, 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 the, than, we, than, than they did when, when it all originally started. Um, what are the medical experts saying right now about the feasibility on getting this thing started on time, potentially? That's um, one of the reasons I, I, I had Dr. Maurice on my show is because I can spend as much time as I want discussing things that I read or things that I see somewhere, knowledge that I've attained and talking to folks privately. But in addition to that, you know, like when you have listeners to the TreeCast, folks want to know not only your expertise, but what, what other experts are, are you bringing in to, to be able to sort of relay their knowledge? And with something like this, man, with a global pandemic, I'm certainly no expert. I'm just here trying to catch up like everyone else. And I'd say a few things that, that are worthy of highlight that Dr. Maurice from the Mayo Clinic pointed out to me. I, I was mentioning a moment ago how, you know, we got, we focused so much on the, the young, healthy student athlete. I think a lot of the folks who are trying to figure out why, you know, if we see the the infection rate increasing, but the fatality rate isn't necessarily increasing. Then why is this such a big deal? Why are folks reacting with such concern? Why can't you just send, you know, the, the youngest, best, best athletes in our country out there and assume that they're all going to be safe? Well, one thing that's worthy of note is that the medical industry has only been studying this for a few months. It is a new coronavirus. COVID-19 has only been around essentially just for the scope of this calendar year. So there are no long-term studies on how this will continue to affect the human body as we move forward here. So with that in mind, whatever complications folks do end up having, we would have to predict out, the medical industry is having to predict out what sort of lung issues, respiratory problems could end up coming from it from there. So just because some youngster doesn't die, there's still a lot of them ending up with, with severe complications. I think that's, that's something that, that we all need to continue remembering. In addition to that, one thing I think the Big Ten and the Pac-12 have pointed out on several occasions here as they've made their conference-only announcement is that it's not just these young, healthy athletes at risk, mm -hmm. especially with a sport like football, Troy. You know it well, man, the volume of people it takes to put these events on, to put a football game on, not just the couple hundred athletes that are going to be out there padded up and on the field running into each other. You've got dozens of coaches. You've got clock operators. You've got, you got you know, chain crews. You've got yep. so many people just throughout the stadium. Even if there's no fans in the stands, all the security that's there, the game of fish, there are just people who you can't account for everyone's potential health complications. So I think viewing it just through the lens of, all right, I guess if we're going to put the kids at risk, at least they're in the demographic that's, potentially least at risk from it, but the kids aren't the only ones out there. Coaches in their 60s and 70s, officials who may be, you know, elderly, you know, clock operators who may be overweight. Who knows, man, there are so many folks who would be at risk in addition to 
the athletes themselves if you start playing these football games. So to try and control, like you said, as many variables as possible and then have the flexibility, the malleability to, to make schedule adjustments if you need to. Like I think one thing that would be beneficial if the season were to start on time would be the fact that you would still then be able to have multiple bye weeks that you could work in from there in a nine or a 10 game sort of schedule if that played out and say, you know what? We need to move a game here. We need to adjust a game there. It's going to be teams within our footprint. And it's going to be other individuals working in the same financial structure that we are. So I think all those things could end up equaling positive results. That's part of why Larry Scott, Kevin Warren decided to go the direction they did. I'm getting the visual of the chain gang going out and trying to measure, you know, third and inches, fourth and inches, but they can't because they'll be violating social distancing guidelines. So they just have to find a way to do it, you know, like two yards out or something that could, that could be a little interesting as well. Uh, You're based in Chicago. Um, How has the virus been in big, in big 10 country? Obviously we're here on the West coast where things have been mixed, quite honestly. Uh, How have things been overall in big 10 country with the, with dealing with the virus? It's interesting, man, because like a, an area like Chicago, because of the, the density of the population in the city of Chicago early on, Chicago was a huge hot spot. One of, one of the, you know, the most virus ridden spots in the country, really, in the initial weeks of COVID. Over the time since then, Chicago itself has, has really been able to bring the curve down quite a bit and been able to pretty effectively go through the reopening process so far. But then that's not necessarily the entirety of the Midwest. You know, you do also have a state like Iowa where mama mater is, as you know, the Iowa Hawkeyes, and they've had some numbers begin to spike here as of late. Uh, the state of Nebraska has been, you know, fairly controlled with it. Wisconsin has had different guidelines, a different approach to it, as has the state of Indiana from some of the other folks within the region. And I think that's where the, the difficulty of the calculus comes into it because a conference like the Big Ten that has 11 different states represented within their 14 teams, the Pac-12, with their 12 teams all up and down the West Coast and the Pacific and the mountain time zones, they're going to be varying results that have to be dealt with just from the, you know, I, I suppose each individual pocket of the country, each region, and what they have to do in trying to account for positive tests, and contact tracing, quarantining, physical distancing that will take place during the season that will end up making it very difficult you know, even if you don't necessarily have any severe health complications on your squad, but as folks test positive, you're going to continue to have to quarantine athletes over and over and over again. And so that's going to be a big part of it. And I think, you know, it was a huge factor in why a conference like the Ivy League in the decision they made to end up postponing their fall sports. I think a, a lot of us looked at it just through the lens of, well, the Ivy League won't lose as much money as the folks from the Power Five. So it's a a bit of an easier decision. I think that's accurate. But in addition to that, you look at the other aspect of it and the folks in the Power Five, they have, you know, in describing the the elements that I'm talking about, man, the the resources you'll need for the amount of tests that will take place throughout a college football season, the contact tracing that will be necessary to do that. There's a lot of person power that goes into contact tracing to make sure that whoever was in contact with an individual who tests positive, that they're aware that perhaps teammates and folks in position groups and everything, that they're going to be likely quarantined as well. And as you kind of go with each domino of that, as things play out, then you're in a position where, you know what? It takes a lot of money between the testing, the quarantining, the contact tracing, perhaps additional facilities that are necessary, additional housing to put athletes in. Ivy League doesn't have that kind of money, just to be frank. The junior college level doesn't have that kind of money 
to do those things. And I think especially once the NCAA comes to a point where they put a, a minimum standard in place for what will be required of testing, contact tracing, housing, you know, how this protocol will need to be set up, they're going to have something that they put out. I, I would have preferred they'd even done that by now. Mm-hmm. When it comes down to it, those in the opposite end of the finances matter too. Perhaps the Ivy League doesn't lose the level of money that other folks do by saying we're not going to have a fall football season. But on the other end of that, they don't even have the level of finances and revenue, specifically via the sports end of things. Obviously, the academic end, Ivy League's got plenty of money for that. But they don't devote the financial resources to sports that folks within the Power Five structure do. And so with that in mind, I think that was a big part of their calculus as well, to say that, you know what, we can just delay this thing and not not put kids at risk and not have to even try to attempt to spend the type of money and resources that would be necessary to try and do it safely. Speaking of finances, and we'll get to a couple of on, on field things here in, in a little bit, but speaking of finances, one of the other big headlines last week was Stanford dropping um, 11 sports after this upcoming academic year. Uh, Stanford, as of right now, with 36 varsity sports. Ohio State with 36 varsity sports right now. Uh, how do you think that news that Stanford was dropping 11 was received in Columbus? Well, you know, Ohio State swings one of the one of the biggest financial swords out of, out of anyone out there, man, just from an endowment and a revenue perspective with all their different sports that bring in so much money, chief amongst those, of course, football. I think the folks in, in Columbus, they're aware of it, paying attention to it, you know, certainly made note of Stanford and the amount of sports that, that they're going to move away from. I don't think Ohio State was necessarily swayed by it from the perspective of of them considering doing something along similar lines. I think while you know as well as anyone, Troy Stanford's not an Ivy League school, but as far as the West Coast goes, probably about as close to Ivy League as you're going to get. Hey, uh, we're, we're, we're the Harvard's, the Stanford of the East now. There you go. <laughs> I think that um, for, for everyone, you know, who cares about the Cardinal, who's interested in the Cardinal, like even, you know, I was texting you about it a little bit when the news first hit to recognize that in a way, you know, Stanford's kind of playing above their weight class, I think, from, from a, a financial investment in, in athletics and, and a revenue standpoint, specifically in athletics, then that does, I, I think that adds some perspective to it. For me, just my, my heart goes out to all those student athletes who had been waiting and wanting for the opportunity to get their degree from Stanford and not just the degree, but to be competitive in athletics at Stanford and then earn your degree from the Cardinal. And that, that's something that while they're going to be able to, you know, those scholarship athletes who are not going to have the opportunity to complete their career with Stanford because their sport's going to be gone. I'm sure most of them, if not all of them, will be able to be a scholarship athlete elsewhere if they choose to do that, but it's not what their goal was. It's not what they signed up for. They signed up, to be an athlete at Stanford, to compete in sports at Stanford, to get their degree at Stanford. And they're, they're not going to have the opportunity to do that. I'm, I love the fact that Stanford has said they're going to honor those scholarships. They're going to honor the contracts of coaches and administrators who were involved in those sports and all the support staff. So I think that is certainly the first class thing to do under this scenario. But in the end, if you're saying, you know what, I actually want to be on the field and I'm not going to have the opportunity to do that here anymore. It, it's kind of heartbreaking. I think, Troy, that we, we tend to, those of us who, who cover athletics, work in athletics, and we view a lot of it through the lens of how, especially a football program and an athletic department ends up 
positively affecting the financial structure of the rest of the university via facilities and the endowment and you know contracts for teachers because you have so many students who now want to enroll at your university because of the notoriety you get from successful sports programs and all those things end up being positives where the athletic structure positively affects the academic structure in a lot of different ways now it, it just it does bring to mind to me where i wonder man would, would there not have been a way where all the success of the academic structure at stanford couldn't have found a way from, from all that money that they do have available somewhere in there to positively affect, to, to bolster the, the success, the financial structure, the solvency of the athletic side of things. And there's not a lot of schools that I think you can necessarily look at that and say there was potential to do it. Maybe the academics could actually funnel some money towards the athletics. But Stanford strikes me as one of the institutions that perhaps could have found a way to do that. I certainly don't know it for sure, but just in my mind and in, in my heart hurting for those athletes and those coaches who aren't going to have those opportunities anymore, it just makes me wonder, man, could, couldn't they have found a way to, to get something structurally figured out to make the numbers work? And apparently they couldn't. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate all, all, all the way around. And unfortunately, I think it's going to be potentially uh, every athletic department is going to be taking a closer look at things. And more often than not, you might have some programs that, that might go away. It's an unfortunate uh, side effect uh, of, of this whole situation. Uh, Stanford football, of course, getting ready for the upcoming season. And I, I think a lot is going to have to fall into place for them to have a truly big season, 10 wins or so, but I'm not 100% ruling it out. What sort of things do you think are going to need to happen for Stanford to have not just a rebound season from four and eight last year, but, but to be a, a big player in the Pac-12 this upcoming season? Man, you know how beat up that offensive line was last year, Troy. That's chief amongst anything else. To have an O-line that stays healthy, that builds continuity, starting games together over and over again, they should have the depth now with everything that returns and presuming health of all these individuals like Walker Little and Foster Sorrell and some of these great talents that they've recruited in in recent years. If you get, I mean, this was literally, you know, between Little and Sorrell, these were the top two tackles in high school football that came out into the same class recruiting-wise, and they really haven't played together on the field at the same time yet. You get those two bookends out there at tackle, it was great to see Sorrell be able to stay out on the field, and even though he was still banged up last year, we didn't get to see the dominance of Walker Little, but we saw Foster Sorrell get through a season of quality play. If you get those two guys healthy, and then you add in the mix, the blend of young underclass talent that played so much football and as the season wore on, played better and better football for Stanford. Now maybe you get back to those ogre packages where they are deep and strong and talented up front and can just push guys around in the way that we've come accustomed to Stanford being able to do. So my discussion about that starts with the O-line. What could end up being a little different for Stanford and especially when you think of, of how David Shaw has continued to sort of nudge the offense, you know, almost in a way like, like turning a battleship a little bit where I suppose for, for lack of a better term, modernizing, I suppose, because Stanford's had such a, a voluminous playbook anyway, but a lot of it has, has bared down to the offensive line, the run game, the intellectual brutality. But David Shaw has been, as you know, Troy, adjusting the offensive approach anyway. Even before the O-line was banged up and running back was a little thin and that sort of thing, he's wanted to, to allow more volume passing, to make sure that they have some depth 
at skill position beyond tight end. But to say we've got some speed, some athleticism at wide receivers, some legitimate playmakers out there, and it feels like, again, talking health, if Davis Mills can stay out of the field in a manner that K.J. Costello didn't, even that he wasn't necessarily able to from a sheer health standpoint last year, but you saw the talent on display from Mills himself when he was out there, when he was healthy, when he's able to sling it, and then at receiver, they're deep, man. I, I like them. I, I'm sure you like the receivers too. Mm-hmm. too. Wilson and Weddington mm-hmm. and St. Brown, man. They got some guys who can go for Hoko. There's some players out there on the outside for the Cardinals. So if they're able to utilize the talent, the depth there, you know David Shaw knows the role, the specific fit within his offensive system that each of those receivers can have. I think that's where Stanford can perhaps be a different version of the Cardinal, maybe than we've ever seen, especially specifically seen under David Shaw, where the O-line health may not have to equal a dominant or brutalizing rushing attack. Maybe it just means stellar passing attacks. Maybe it just means pass protection that allows a guy with the talents of Davis Mills to be able to just pepper the football around to all that talent I was just talking about a moment ago at receiver. Of course, tight end will be in the mix as well. So that's something I'm really excited about. I, I think the defense will get shored up to some extent, again, assuming health. But when it comes down to it, man, that Stanford offense, I'm really, really anticipating some big things between Davis Mills, who was the number one QB in the country, was an Army All-American. Well, you know, I call that game every year for NBC. Mm-hmm. He was hurt at that point. He's been injured most of his Stanford career, even though he hadn't touched the field before this past season. So the guy's got to stay healthy. But you've seen him, Troy. If he is healthy, he is as talented as any quarterback in the Pac-12. Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching the offense and seeing how productive it can be. And I somehow suspect that it might need to be productive based on some of the question marks that Stanford seems to have uh, defensively. A couple last things for you here. Um, We're going to be missing out on some pretty neat non-conference matchups. Michigan, Washington, Oregon, Ohio State. Of course, the marquee one was USC and Alabama. And when this was originally brought up a couple months ago, the possibility of going to a conference-only season, and uh, Clay Helton, the USC head coach, was asked about it. And I was like, wait a minute. Well, USC, I'm sure, I'm sure they would love to be playing that Alabama game from a financial standpoint and just from a competition standpoint. But something also tells me that that's a pretty big test that now, that now USC doesn't need to take. Maybe the same for Oregon and maybe the same for, Mich- for, for Washington as well. You know, what, is, what do you think the Pac-12 loses without having some of those major marquee, you know, Stanford for Notre Dame, you could say that as well. What do you think the Pac-12 loses without having their marquee non-conference matchups on the table this season? I'm going to be real, man. It, it makes a more difficult path to, well, and, you know, We'll see what happens, but right. just assuming a playoff structure, you know, right. I, I suppose that would be, that would be to me the chief concern because for, for the, the view, the perception of the PAC 12 conference at this point, a lot of it is about thinking that there certainly hasn't been that national championship caliber program. And without that in the fold here in recent years, then it ends up affecting the perception of the remainder of the conference as well, regardless of how schematically diverse the conference is on each side of the ball, how many programs could be in that division championship picture in both the North and the South and just play quality bowl caliber football. If Oregon isn't a team viewed as a national championship caliber team or USC or who knows, perhaps Washington, you know, if someone doesn't emerge as that national championship front runner type of program, like we would hope some of these programs could this year, then the perception of the entire conference will continue to be affected. You know, like folks were impressed by Washington early in the season against Auburn last year, but 
couldn't quite close or by Oregon last season against Auburn, but couldn't quite close it out. It's like, oh, well, they, they went toe to toe with him. They outplayed him, but they didn't win. There's that but that's there for the Pac-12 in that non-conference slate. So now not having the ability this season to sort of check that off the list with some of these big matchups you referenced, man, like I was so looking forward. I mean, Oregon, Ohio State is obviously, that's a national championship caliber game right off the bat. I was really intrigued though personally by Michigan, Washington, because each program has a, a championship pedigree, but neither one is picked to win their individual conference this year. But Michigan, their fans especially, they expect that they at some point should be able to knock off Ohio State and win the Big Ten under Jim Harbaugh. Washington fans, they know they're not the favorites this year, but they're accustomed to being a Pac-12 championship caliber program now, and you got Jimmy Lake's first season. So that, to me, specifically with the Big Ten Pac-12 matchups, I'd say that one intrigues me from a storyline perspective even more because you have those programs in Michigan and Washington who would have had that resume building data point and then go into conference play perhaps with momentum that could try and boost something as opposed to where Oregon, Ohio State, they're both the heavies. They're both the favorites. They're both expected to bully the competition in their respective conferences. And so the championship implications there would have been a lot of fun. And certainly the stars on the field would have been amazing. So I'm certainly not poo-pooing that game. But I think from a storyline perspective, Michigan-Washington actually even intrigued me a bit more. Yeah, and Jim Harbaugh coming back to Pac-12 country, that, that's always going to, to, to get some notice and get some sort of billing um, right. nationwide. As we wrap this up here, um, I've, I've usually been, you know, when I've had experts on the show over the last couple of months, I've usually wrapped up um, with this question. Um, I've asked them, scale of 1 to 10, their confidence level in the season starting on time, and scale of 1 to 10, their confidence level of the season finishing on time. Well, I'm going to cut that question in half and just focus on what's your confidence level, 1 to 10, that the college football season starts on time? It's ebbed and flowed almost on a weekly basis lately, man, right? So, I mean, like coming off of the, the last week or two that we've had here, it makes it difficult for me to, to remain as confident as I was that the season would at least start. Now, that being said, while I'm not as confident as I was, I still I feel more likely than not that we will see a kickoff to the college football season, that we will see it in, in the realm, in the range of time, you know, somewhere that first week of September. Now, I think everyone's probably going to view it and say that, you know what, if we do have some starts and stoppages, if we do say that, you know what, if, if everyone's playing 10 games and we can do that over 13 or 14 weeks, then that gives us additional flexibility. So I think in the end, the season will start on time. I think there's going to be hiccups. And in the end, I would say I'm out of a scale of one to 10, I would say I'm six and a half <laughs> that the okay. season will start on time. The finished part, I'm a yeah. little more skittish on that. Yeah, yeah. I, I've totally taken that off the board. Just, just, <laughs> I'm just more concerned about things starting on time yeah, now right. than yeah. ever before. Uh, always great to catch up with Anthony Heron. You can follow him on Twitter at Big Ant Heron. He knows the Pac-12. He knows the Big Ten. Knows Chicago sports. I'm sure he's got thoughts on Mitch Trubisky and what they need to do to get the Bears truly going in the NFC North. And he's got a heck of a mask game as well. <laughs> always, always great to catch up with the one and only Anthony Heron. Anthony, thanks a bunch. Appreciate the time as always. Hope we get a chance to cross paths at a stadium yeah. at some point soon, ideally this fall. But uh, thanks as always. Best of uh, health to you and the family. We'll talk again soon.
Troy, I appreciate it, my friend. Congrats on all your success, man. Really looking forward to seeing you. I'm definitely going to be talking to you as we move forward, though. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, certainly appreciate the time. That's Anthony Heron joining us on uh, this week's TreeCast. And uh, <laughs> you, you want to talk ball in Chicago? That's the guy you go see. So uh, honored and so uh, cool to see uh, the things that he has been able to do and, and to still remain an expert, not just with the Pac-12. Awesome to see him whenever he has come this way to uh, analyze and call football games. Um, he knows full well what Christian McCaffrey can do. He was on the call for Roxy Bernstein for the 2016 big game over in Berkeley. That was that was a that was a pretty nice day, a wet one. I was dry up in the press box, but you know, still still a pretty nice day uh, overall. But also with the Big Ten, I'm glad that he could break it down for us uh, from the perspectives of both of those conferences. And Big Ten was first. Pac-12 followed suit. Are any of the other conferences in the Power 5 grouping going to uh, go to conference only? Well, Big 12 tabling things, SEC tabling things as well. I'm not sure if the ACC has said anything uh, substantive to this point, but everyone else seems to be in wait-and-see mode. But Big 10 and Pac-12 already going to conference-only mode for all of its fall sports for the upcoming season. Now, Pac-12 football media days are apparently still on the schedule for July 29th. That's less than two weeks from now. Not sure how that is going to be affected by things. The Pac-12 has said that they want to try to announce the new schedule, uh, certainly for football. I'm not 100% sure if this applies to all fall sports, but certainly for football, they want to try to announce uh, the schedule uh, by the end of the month. Uh, so maybe the Pac-12 will do a do a double packaging or something like that with a media days and a, and a schedule announcement. Who knows? I, I don't know what they're going to do, and I'm not 100% sure that they quite know uh, completely what they're going to do as well. But also keep in mind, this could also potentially have an effect on the Pac-12 football championship game as well, as it's scheduled right now to be held at Allegiant Stadium, where the uh, Las Vegas Raiders... It's going to take me a while to get used to saying that. Where the Las Vegas Raiders are scheduled to start playing beginning this fall. Looks like a pretty decent place to play. I would imagine, I would imagine that whether an 11-game schedule gets played in the Pac-12, 10 games, 8 games, 4 games, 2 games, I'd imagine that the Pac-12 is going to try its hardest and darndest to play that Pac-12 football game, that championship game, no matter what. I would imagine that would be the case, and for obvious reasons. Might be a little difficult to do if we play two games, but 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 I, I would imagine that they would try to play this game no matter what, no matter how the season looks. Now, keep in mind that because Allegiant Stadium is also the home of the Las Vegas Raiders, um... Should the Pac-12 football championship game need to be moved around a little bit? Should there need to be some flexibility with the scheduling there? I am not 100% sure how that is going to affect things from the Raiders' standpoint as far as if, if there needs to be a plan B for the championship game uh, for a date and possibly a site. Not exactly sure how that um, to this point is going to work. Uh, the Raiders' December schedule with the Pac-12 football championship game scheduled for December 4th. Uh, the uh, Raiders' home schedule for December, uh, they've got home games December the 13th. They've got a quick turnaround, a Thursday game December the 17th. 
and uh, home game again on December 26th or 27th. They haven't figured out uh, week 16 in the NFL as of right now. So home schedule, the home slate for December for the Raiders looks a little full. Not sure exactly how long it takes for them to turn things around. Uh, we might we might find out this upcoming December. So there are certainly some variables uh, in play uh, with the Pac-12 football championship game, um, along with everything else. Uh, we'll, we'll find out and see where things stand and uh, see what the Pac-12 announces when they announce things. They hope to do so at the end of the month. But great to have uh, Anthony Heron on the show with us, also giving us some of the uh, uh, some of his latest uh uh, learnings from the uh, medical experts whom we all should be trusting and listening to at this point to guide us going forward. But great to have uh, Big Ant uh, in on the program. As always, I welcome your input and your feedback on the show. Best way to do it is via Twitter, hashtag TreeCast, hashtag TreeCast. You can follow me at Troy Clarity at Troy Clarity, last misspelled C-L-A-R-D-Y. And, and thanks for checking us out uh, on the show, no matter which app you use to listen to the program, uh, whether it's uh, via Spotify or Stitcher or, or Google Play or Apple Podcasts, uh, we got you covered. Uh, any way you want to listen to the show, uh, we have you covered here. And we're so glad to have you on board with us. Thankful uh, that you've stuck with us here through the summer. I'll be honest, I wasn't planning on doing these uh, past the end of spring ball. Um, things changed, <laughs> safe to say. You can apply that uh, to a lot of uh, a lot of different things uh, right now. But uh, thank you so much for being here with us. And uh, hopeful that we are talking about on-field things when appropriate and when we should be. And um, hopefully that we do so with as minimal disruption as possible. We already know there will not be a full slate of games for football and for the other fall sports as well. So TreeCast will be with you uh, through it all. Looking forward to seeing how it all shakes out and hope that it, I'm an optimistic guy, but I'm also a realist too. I'm also a realistic guy too. And uh, hopefully things uh, turn around for the better. That'll wrap it up for this week's edition of the TreeCast. Thanks to our guest. Anthony Heron from the Pac-12 Network and Sirius XM College Big Ten this morning. Thanks of all, most of all, to you for checking us out on the show. Don't drink and drive. If you do, you're the dumbest person on the planet, but not quite as dumb, or just as dumb, I should say, as the person who refuses to wear a mask in public in this day and age. Mask it or ask it. Can't stress that enough, folks. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for being with us here on the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network.